she froze in terror at the sight of the beast. A huge German shepherd was guarding the doors to the court. Mrs. Williams was deathly afraid of dogs, and as she saw the dog, she froze, and then her body began to shake, and tears started running down her face before she abruptly turned around and ran out of the building. She was to have been the key witness that day, who alone could prevent an innocent man from going to jail. About a dozen people had seen the accused when he was allegedly somewhere else committing the crime, and the lawyer had complained to the judge who reluctantly allowed him to admit an eyewitness from this group, and the older black woman called to testify was Mrs. Williams. Later, she wept as she explained to the lawyer, I feel so badly. I let you down today. I was meant to be in that courtroom. I should have been in that courtroom. She could not be consoled. She said, I wanted to be in there so bad, but when I saw that dog, all I could think about was Selma, Alabama, 1965. I remember how they beat us, and I remember the dogs. I wanted to move, and I tried to move, but I just couldn't do it. And so she walked away with tears running down her face. The trauma the abuse, the injustice that she had experienced decades earlier had kept her from testifying in court that day, leaving an innocent man at risk of yet another miscarriage of justice. We're going to look at a passage typically read around Advent or Christmas. It's a song that a woman sang because she was happy and wanted to worship God. Her name was Mary. She was a virgin, and she had just been told by an angel that she was pregnant with the child of the Most High God. It's a song that spoke powerfully into her world of injustice, just as it has ever since. We're going to read for context what happens earlier, and then we'll be focusing the sermon on the song itself. This is the Gospel of the Lord according to Luke Chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, and then picking up again in verse 46. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And the angel left her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. 
Mary has just been told that the Lord himself is growing in her womb. Quiet until now, the reality of what she has experienced sinks in, and she bursts into song. She bursts into worship. It's the world's first Christmas carol, the world's first Advent song. We know it today as the Magnificat. That's quite an interesting Christmas carol that she sings. It's less about snowmen with eyes of coal, reindeers with incandescent noses, jingly bells, and dreams of a monochromatic Christmas. What do we see here in Mary's song? We see Mary singing a revolutionary carol. Look at the scope of the vision of her prayer. For a passage usually read around Christmas, it's an incredibly subversive Christmas carol. You know, God scatters those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. God throws down rulers from their thrones. You know, this is a 12-year-old girl. God sends the rich away empty. God blesses and lifts up the humble. He fills the hungry. He remembers to be merciful to those who seek in him salvation. Mary here sounds less like the 12-year-old that historically she probably was, and she sounds more like a Jewish Che Guevara. Indeed, worldly powers have often found this song for Mary inherently threatening to their control, to their agenda. As the Nazis gained hold of the German Weimar Republic in 1933, it was the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer who noted the subversive nature of Mary's song. He writes, the song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle tender, dreamy Mary who we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols, he writes. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humbled, humbled lords of this world, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. I saw a photo on Twitter recently. I think we've got that. It's from a, a Ukrainian uh, journalist, uh, and uh, it's of a mother taking her daughter to the central railway station in Kyiv to send her off to the west to Poland so that the mother can herself return to war. When many think of Mary, they have a ethereal, head-in-the-clouds vision of this naive girl. When I think of Mary, that's what I see. A woman committed to justice. Thank you. Listen to what she says. This is a kingdom vision that upturns the world's corruption, the world's values of power. The rich and the poor trade places. The weak and the strong are reversed. He has scattered those who are proud, she says. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. But he has lifted up the humble. And he has lift, and he's filled the hungry with good things. But he has sent the rich away empty. 
It's a revolutionary vision in which the way up is down. The way to riches is by giving it away through poverty. The way to be satisfied is passing through deprivation. It's an integral part of the kingdom of God, an integral part of God's mission through Jesus. It's an upend beginning in the church, the world and all of its values. What are you living for? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that fills you with anxiety? What is it that makes you wish you were dead? What is it that if taken away from you, you would doubt whether God is even there? What is it that you would be willing to send to get? Those are the things we live for, wealth or success or fame, to be desirable, to be loved, to be popular, to be secure, to have honor and respect from other people, to be successful in the face of eternity, these things can become quite worthless with the billions of years that lie ahead. And Jesus came to turn all of that system on its head. Mary sings aloud. He scattered those who are proud. He brings down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. It's a revolutionary Christmas carol. And what's fascinating about this revolutionary kingdom of God that she's declaring is that it's about more than just forgiveness. It's also about biblical justice. You know, the Hebrew scriptures emphasize so much righteousness and justice, that everybody would be treated right, that you would do right by others, that's righteousness, and just, that everybody would get what they deserve, that nothing would be taken from them, that, that, that the widow and the orphan and the poor person and the migrant would have special protections so that the powerful can't abuse them, which is what happens in a pagan society. It's, it's, it's a vision of shalom, of, of universal flourishing, where God and his people and nature are all bound together in justice and love. God has always been offended when his people swap out justice for religion. It's the passage that we just read from Isaiah 1. When, when God says, though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered in blood. God's heart for justice is something we see at the center of his passion. This is most certainly a God of wrath in the New and Old Testament, a God of justice, a God who is angered when human beings are abused, when human life is taken, when people are treated wrongly, a God who will not let evil have the last word. You know, you picture the Ukrainian town being bombed and blasted from far off from a Russian column that's sitting there with, with, with rocket-propelled grenades and tanks and rocket launchers, and, and, and they're just destroying houses. They're destroying apartment buildings. Women are cowering in the basement, having babies in subways. And then you hear a loud explosion. And on the far-off hill, that Russian column is in flames and you see a Ukrainian farmer with his rocket-propelled grenade on the back of his tractor. And you ask yourself, was that justice or was that salvation? Because from the perspective of the oppressed, from the perspective of the victim, it is both. It is just and it is salvation. 
as one with a theological education, I often keep a leery eye out for recent shifts in Christian teaching and mission because very often new shifts and emphases that are out there distract from the core focus of Scripture, which is on the kingdom of God, but, but not always. And uh, in recent years, there has been an increased focus on justice in the Bible. It was always there in the black church, but the white church didn't talk about it. We need to talk about it because it's right here in Scripture, a central th thrust of the Bible itself. I, I think of former members of ours who had to move away at the beginning of the pandemic, but uh, you know they have regular jobs and whatnot, but in their free time, they spend their time on Facebook freeing slaves from rich families in Lebanon. Uh, the way they do it is the, the, you know, the, the, the wealthy in Lebanon often you know, hire, typically from South Asia, young women to come work, and they promise them money, but sometimes they get there and they take away their passport and they don't give them any money and they don't allow them to communicate. And it's modern slavery. And these former members of ours, they get the details and then they just start, they have a, a Facebook site called This is Lebanon. And you can see all of these rich people with slaves on this website, and they invariably send them home uh, because of the shame in an honor-based culture. Uh, I think of an acquaintance I knew here in St. Louis who worked with trafficked women, uh, trying to get them free, trying to get them willing to be free. When you see followers of Jesus working for racial justice, when you see them coming alongside pregnant mothers so they can keep their children, when you see Jesus followers giving up power and wealth and status to empower and defend victims, that is the church that Jesus came to create. You know, I remember a story, I think it was a Tim Keller story, of a, of a young guy in an office in Manhattan. And he was trying to work on a resume because there was a, 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 a a more senior role that had opened up in the company and he, he wanted to see if he had a chance at it, but, but he wasn't good at resumes and, and he was frustrated and, and, and his coworker, who's a Christian, uh, saw that he was struggling and offered to help. And after several hours, this guy's resume was amazing. And a few weeks later, they find out he got the job. And what he didn't know is that his Christian coworker had also put in his name for the job. But because of his love and mercy toward this other guy, he had lost the job to the one he helped. That is what it looks like when the kingdom of God invades the business world of today. Mary is telling us that her baby Jesus will be born to overturn oppressive and corrupt power structures of this world, and he'll do so in the least expected way. Whenever her song is sung, whenever it's sung, the abused hear hope why Mary's Magnificat has so often been suppressed. When, when India was under British colonial rule, the, the government forbade pastors, priests, and churches at times from reading, preaching, or seeing the Magnificat, lest it undermine British colonial rule. In Guatemala in the 1980s, the government forbade the publication of this song, lest it subvert the privileges of the economic and political elite. In Argentina in the 1980s, the military dictatorship did the same thing as the mothers of the disappeared found in Mary's Magnificat, a reversal of the world's oppressive political system. And it demands of us a humility and an obedience to God 
That's the posture Mary models for us. And in response to the words of the angel, she, she says, I am the Lord's servant, she answers, and may it be to me as you have said, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Humble state can mean humiliation. A humble state can mean a lowly heart. His mercy, she says, extends to those who fear him. To fear God, not as you fear an enemy who's out to get you, but as one fears something so powerful and so immense that you dare not trifle with it. You don't want to find yourself playing games with God. For the mighty one, she sings, has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Holy, like in Isaiah 6, where the angels cover their faces and cry out in triple repetition, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let all the earth be filled with his glory. Holy, holy, holy. You know, in, in, in Hebrew, that, that repetition is how you emphasize something. You know, in English, you know, we, we just get loud or we get quiet. If you're a counselor, you, you emphasize things by getting quiet. Um, Mary leans in. You know, uh, or if you're, you're writing a message, you know, you can do bold or all caps or double underline. But, but in Hebrew, you repeat it. Absalom, Absalom, oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem. Here's the triple repetition. God is not common. God is not like us. Do not play games with God. He is holy. Such an immense holy being, yet so beautiful and, and uncontrollable, the one who is life himself, glorious in his holiness and fearful in praises, the one who works wonders among us, such a one calls us to rightly fear him, to fear toying with him, and instead offer our very lives in humble obedience to him. It was the uh, Episcopal priest and scholar, Fleming Rutledge, who wrote these words. She says, St. Luke's message is clear. Mary is a model of the disciple. Her greatness does not lie in her intercessions with her son, an utterly unbiblical idea, she points out, or even in her giving birth to Jesus. Rather, her greatness, according to Luke, is that she heard, believed, and obeyed God. Mary was brought up in the knowledge of God. She knew the Old Testament intimately. The story of God's mighty acts were second nature to her. Luke depicts her in the story of the visitation, breaking forth into one of the greatest of all biblical hymns, the Magnificat. And this is not some vague religious sensibility on Mary's part. Mary has received a message from the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And she knows very well where she stands in relation to that. She says, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. The kingdom of God is about more than forgiveness. Forgiveness is how it starts in our lives. But, you know, I sometimes talk to people who say, oh, no, Greg, I'm a Christian, but, but they're not walking with God. And I say, but you're not walking with God. And I, I know, but I, I asked Jesus into my life just to get some fire insurance, but I don't actually want to live for him. And, and I hate to break it to you, but that's not an option Jesus offered. He wasn't selling fire insurance. You know, that's, he, he's, he's selling a kingdom. A kingdom in which he is the Lord. A kingdom of justice and righteousness. Forgiveness is a doorway into that kingdom. But it is the relationship to Jesus as Lord and God that to which he has called you. To a revolutionary calling. And we see Mary here seeing this 
revolutionary carol because this revolutionary kingdom is about more than forgiveness. It's also about justice and reversing the world's value system beginning in the household of God. It's incredibly subversive. But there is an even deeper subversiveness to Mary's little Christmas carol. It's more subversive than many have imagined because in it she reverses human assumptions about religion. See, religion tells us that our faith, our good works, our righteous life, the things we do for God are what we use to gain leverage over God so that he will bless us. Religion can, by nature, be quite transactional. We give money, we help the poor, we attend worship services, we tithe, we obey the Ten Commandments, and in return for our service, God is supposed to bless us. That's religion, and it's pervasive in our churches. You say, now, Greg, it's not pervasive in churches that really preach the gospel with clarity. I know a pastor who, if he doesn't preach the gospel with clarity, nobody does. But... He said this, uh, he was talking about a, 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 a woman in his church who had stopped coming to church. She'd stopped giving, she'd stopped serving after decades in the church, and he was concerned. He was wondering, is her health okay? Has she fallen? Has she, has she moved away? Is she, has she been somehow wounded or hurt by someone in the church? Has she been overlooked? Are we not caring for her? Why is she not around? So she, he hunted her down, and she said this. For 25 years, I brought my kids to church. I sent them to Christian schools and to Christian colleges. I brought them to church events. I gave money. I had them at church every week. I sent them to youth group, to Bible clubs, to VBS, to all of it. And now, as adults, none of them believes in God. So I have nothing more to do with God. You can hear her disappointment, her lost hope. And you can feel compassion for her, but you can also hear her legalism. The religion. Was she coming to church and doing all these things for God? Or was she doing it for herself? Because she thought doing these things would get leverage over God and he would give her what she wanted, which is believing children, when it doesn't seem like she believed herself because she was living a works-based relationship with God that will never be saving. She did a bunch of good things. God owed her. She didn't get what she wanted. She's done with them. Transactional. She was using God. And when God failed her, she was done with God. It happens in our churches, friends, all the time. It takes truly immense pride to think we can gain leverage over God by what we do. Such religion is the opposite of the message of the Bible. The Bible subverts that message of human religion. The kingdom of which Mary sings reverses transactional religion. It's not those who bring great offerings to God who are blessed. It is those who come with the empty hands of faith. She says, the Lord has lifted up the humble, those who have nothing to offer. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. He remembers to be merciful because he promised, she says. This is the gospel. This is God's grace. This is saying that God, God chooses us and loves us and blesses us and promises us so that we will live for him and not for ourselves and our passions. We assume very often that good people go to heaven and bad people don't, but this reverses that. 
Those who think they're good, the self-righteous, they don't make it in. Those who know themselves to be broken, damaged, helpless sinners, they're the ones who get salvation in Jesus. Because, Mary says, God blesses the humble. This baby to be born, to go to the cross, to bring us complete forgiveness and entrance into a kingdom of justice and righteousness and grace. Jesus said, if anyone hears my word and believes him who sent me, he is crossed over from death to life and will not be condemned. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to himself. I don't have to measure up. Jesus did that for me. It is a total reversal of everything we assume about religion. And that, friends, that gospel, that God blesses the humble, that's the power to live for a kingdom of justice and grace. If God had mercy on me when I was his enemy, as the Bible says he did, then my calling to treat others with justice and mercy is not contingent on their being worthy of my help. I wasn't worthy, and God blessed me. It's a distinctly Christian ethic. I read one scholar's account of a dialogue at Yale between Muslim and Christian scholars on the topic of love and compassion. And while there, he says, I noticed a critical difference between the Christian and Muslim understandings of love and compassion. He writes, the Christian participants had been taught by Jesus that love should be indiscriminate. Just as the mercy shown by the Good Samaritan was conditioned on nothing other than the wounded man's need, that, uh, but that may not be the way we generally behave, he says, but, but it is the way we have learned to think of ourselves. It is the standard against which we measure ourselves. He writes, the Muslim participants startled us Christian participants by talking about the limits of their religion, the limits their religion brought to their compassion. Orphans, widows, and others in need through no fault of their own deserve compassion, they said. But in Islamic law, there was no obligation to help the person whose drunkenness or gambling or otherwise unwise behavior put them in difficulty. He writes, reflecting on what I heard those Muslim leaders say, the tension was not between a generous God and a stingy God, as Japanese theologian Kusuke Koyama puts it, but, but rather between mercy that was defined and conditioned by justice, the Muslim view, and justice that was conditioned and defined by mercy, the Christian view. Jesus said it's those who are spiritually bankrupt, the poor in spirit, who are saved. You can't be middle class in spirit and be saved. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. The Lord, Mary says, has lifted up the humble. And when that sinks in, and when that captures your heart, it enables us to get outside of ourselves long enough to live into the kingdom of justice that Jesus was born to rule over. Where are you with Jesus? I wish I could ask each of you directly. Where are you with Jesus? Are you self-sufficient? Are you proud? Do you have it together? If so, Mother Mary comes to you speaking words of wisdom. My Lord scatters the proud, but he lifts up the humble. You've got to be broken. You've got to be damaged. You've got to be needy of a Savior. You've got to humble yourself beneath his grace and say, Lord, I need you to run my life. Because for those, there is a salvation more complete than we could ever imagine. Another pastor of a, a big rich church 
said this. He said, all my members are wealthy. Churches have a tendency to self-segregate if we aren't careful. This pastor said, not many of the people in my church get the gospel. Not many get Jesus. They're too self-sufficient. They're too self-reliant. They don't realize how much they need Jesus. But the ones that do get the gospel, the ones who really encounter Jesus, those are the ones who've blown it. Maybe their company went bankrupt or they had an affair, or they lost their marriage, or their kids were in rehab. But something happened, and they knew they couldn't fix it. Their money couldn't fix it. Their resources couldn't fix it. No amount of manipulation or control could fix it. They were helpless, and they learned to cling to Jesus. They knew they were as broken and damaged as any common criminal. Those ones, he said, they got the gospel. They got Jesus. When you see someone really get the gospel, it's all about Jesus. It's all about grace. It's not my faithfulness, but his, Jesus's. You can see it on their face when it, when it sinks in. That countenance, it changes. You have a confidence that's not based on something in yourselves. They're looking outward and upward to Jesus and, and, and know that God has their back. And because of that, they have joy even in the midst of hardship. And they're ready to sign up in service to God and his kingdom of justice and grace. We see how it happened to Mary, to Mary the revolutionary. She was blessed with an impossible blessing. She got the gospel and she burst out in song. It's like David, when he got the gospel, he danced half naked, embarrassing his wife. He couldn't contain himself any longer. This is the good news that God has come into the world. He's come to establish a kingdom of justice beginning now in his family, in his church, beginning with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit upon us to make us his outward-faced missionaries to a world with a message of hope in Christ and the real possibility of a new justice and righteousness, a revolutionary new way in a revolutionary kingdom born of a revolutionary act of salvation upon the cross. It can change you, friends. It can change you. Look to Jesus. Mrs. Williams was to have been the eyewitness who could prove and a, a man was innocent, who could prevent him from going to jail. But the trauma that she had experienced decades earlier in Selma had defeated her. The next day, her sister told the lawyer that Mrs. Williams didn't eat or talk to anybody all night long. They just heard her praying all through the night, all night long, praying the same prayer. Lord Jesus, I can't be scared of no dog. Lord, I can't be scared of no dog. The next morning, she walked up to the defense counsel and said, I ain't scared of no dog. I ain't scared of no dog. And then she walked right past that huge German shepherd into the courtroom. The courtroom was packed when the judge walked in and everybody rose and then sat down except Miss Williams. She didn't sit down. She told the entire courtroom in a loud, firm voice, I am here. The lawyer explains, what she was saying wasn't that she was physically present. She was saying, I may be old, I may be poor, 
I may be black, but I am here because I have a vision of justice that compels me to stand up to injustice. And that was when the tide in the case turned. This Christian woman's faith-filled, in the face of terror, faith-filled eyewitness testimony sent an innocent man home. Let's pray.